large scale combat operations are not inevitable and it's an it, the imperative should be to avoid it given the humanitarian consequences welcome to nsl unscripted a national security law podcast brought to you by the national security law department at the u.s army's the judge advocate general's legal center and school we bring you conversations and hot topics from nsl practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode <laughs> Welcome once again to another episode of NSL Unscripted. I am your host, Major Emily Bobbinreath. And while I'm currently a student in the 71st graduate course at the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, I will be joining the National Security Law Department this summer as an associate professor. But today, we have the privilege of hosting Ms. Lakmini Senaviratna, legal advisor and head of the legal department at the Regional International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC, delegation for the U.S. and Canada based in Washington, D.C. Lakmini has been with the ICRC since 2008 and brings a wealth of experience and knowledge about the ICRC, its mission, and what we as national security law practitioners should be aware of when it comes to working with this unique organization. I met Lakmini last week for the first time over Zoom to plan this podcast, and the first thing that struck me about her is just how incredibly approachable and down-to-earth she is. I'm so excited to bring her kindness and expertise to the podcast. Lakmini, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Emily, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here as well. So today we are going to talk about the ICRC, its mission in combat operations, as well as discuss how uniformed attorneys work and interface with the ICRC in a deployed environment. But first, what I'd like to do, Lakmini, is I'd love to start by asking a little bit about your background and career path. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to today? Sure, I'm happy to. Part of it was choice, part of it was coincidence, I would say, because I grew up in a country that was at war. So it was a reality in my life uh, as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult. So I was pretty curious to take up an elective that was offered in law school for the first time in, in the Faculty of Law in University of Colombo. Under the, under the title of International Humanitarian Law. So I was curious to know, is there really a law that governs war? Because all I see is horrendous consequences all around me. So I did study the subject that way. And then I got, that's how I first got introduced to the ICRC about the existence of this very unique organization. So I went to the United States to do my graduate studies and I came back. And I was very lucky because the post of legal advice in the ICRC Colombo had opened up. And I have, of course, I applied. <laughs> and then uh, I was very lucky, I guess, got selected. Lo and behold, that's, that was my entry into the ICRC. And then it also happened that Sri Lanka was one of the top 10 operations of the ICRC at the time. And that's not necessarily a compliment. That means that things are going pretty wrong in the country in, from the perspective of, of an armed conflict. So the ICRC was very heavily involved in, in humanitarian operations. And I also had the chance to volunteer to a medical evacuation. And I, I, I really saw, I believe, is what is the heart of the ICRC's mandate as, as a neutral intermediary. So that got me enticed into being an operational legal advisor for the ICRC, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in, the, in this episode. Then I jumped at the opportunity when the ICRC offered me to, to be an operational legal advisor, starting with Afghanistan. And then I went on to be an operational legal coordinator for ICRC in Iraq and Syria and so on. So briefly, that's my journey with the ICRC. And here I am in, in Washington, D.C. 
That's incredible. Uh, you mentioned briefly the heart of what the ICRC does. Can you explain a little bit more about the role and mission of the ICRC? Sure, sure. So the ICRC has its mandate in the Geneva Conventions, as you all know, in the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols, and also the statutes of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. Um, so that is to say that we have an international mandate conferred by states on the ICRC to do something very unique. That is to be an independent and neutral organization that ensures protection and assistance to of victims and to victims um, of armed conflict and, and other situations of violence. That essentially, and we can talk a little bit about the neutral independent role later on, but that basically means that the ICRC works with parties to armed conflict to ensure that they comply with international humanitarian law obligations, to make sure that those who are protected, those who have protected status in armed conflict are in fact protected. Those who need access to basic services in fact have those uh, that kind of access. And also that parties to armed conflict fight war according to the rules of rules of war in the choice of means and methods of warfare and, and in the way they carry out their hostilities and detention operations and then so on. And another way to look at the ICRC's role, Emily, is to think about what is commonly referred to as the, the guardian of IHL, ICRC being the guardian of IHL. And that is not only to ensure that states and parties to armed conflict faithfully apply IHL in times of armed conflict, but also to play a clarification and development role in relation to the law. So the ICRC takes upon itself the responsibility as cast upon by, as conferred by states on it to make sure that the law is developed and interpreted in, in line with the spirit of the law, balancing humanity versus military necessity, uh, remaining faithful to the law so that states and other non-state actors um, apply the law in, in, uh, in times of armed conflict in the way that they are obliged to. So that's, that's the threefold role of the ICRC, I would say, protection, assistance, and um, sort of developing and clarifying the role, um, uh, clarifying the law in a preventive sense. So on that more granular level of the law and your role as a legal advisor, in practical terms, Lakmini, what does that mean? What I'm hearing is a little bit of legal development in terms of ensuring things are codified and therefore enforced. But are you also dealing with, say, investigations of actors that aren't in compliance? Um, who, you know, who is your client? Do you represent any of the parties that, that you're speaking to? Just to give an idea of just what attorneys for the ICRC do on a daily basis. That's an important question, Emily, because I think it's in, uh, this, the reason I say impo it's important is because whether you're a legal advisor in the ICRC or whether you're an engineer working on water and sanitation issues or um, medical specialist, um, we all treat the, uh, as our customers the beneficiaries of our humanitarian services. So they are, in fact, our, we treat them as our boss because mm -hmm. that's our ultimate, um, that's where our accountability is too. So when you ask me who are my clients, I can, of course, I think that's our primary client to whom we have to remain uh, accountable. But then depending on what type of a legal advisor you are in the ICRC, your audience changes. 
So I think we can categorize the legal advisors of the ICRC broadly into three categories. Uh, for the ease of understanding, I would say they could be um, one category would be thematic legal advisors, mainly based in our headquarters in Geneva and um, and to a certain extent in, in in our office in New York, for example, who are delving deep into thematic issues and sort of interpreting the law, developing the law, um, and working with states bilaterally or in multilateral forums to, to work with the, the clarification and development of the law, um, be it in treaty, in drafting treaties uh, or you know, agreements uh, and, and so on and so forth. And then, uh, and in and uh, being active in in multilateral forums like the United Nations, um, and then more connected to the field, I would say, are two categories of legal advisors: one who work on the um, national implementation of the law, meaning working with states to make sure that they have the tools and the systems in place to apply the law when it it's time to apply the law. Um, like have the national law in place, make sure that um, militaries are trained, academy, academy, academia are providing um, educational um, you know, opportunities for people to learn, students to learn about the law and so on and so forth. So there, there's that category of lawyers. And then you have lawyers, legal advisors such as myself, who are, uh, the, I would say, the equivalent of NSL practitioners. We are called operational legal advisors. We accompany a delegation in in uh, in not in every delegation, but in certain delegations where there are active hostilities going on, or where there are uh, operations into which that state is military operations into which that state is party to, where we advise the ICRC and through the ICRC the the client the the states or the non-state actors to apply the law to real life situations. So it's operational examples or uh, case studies to which, uh, and real life ones to which we provide advice. So I would say those are the three categories of legal advisors that you find in the ICRC through whom we reach out to states and the, the three branches of states, non-state actors, academia, uh, militaries, and so on and so forth. And along the lines of being an operational attorney, what would you say currently are the biggest legal challenges that you and your department are seeing and facing from an operational standpoint in today's ongoing conflicts? Thanks, Emily. I, I'll answer that question more from the perspective of the ICRC's legal division, broadly speaking, and not just the Washington office as such, because it also, of course, it applies to us, but it's also bigger than us. So I will refer, of course, to the Ukraine context because it's it's front and center of mind um, for for most of us, um, you know, in the ICRC, in the militaries and states, and so on. But I think it's important to also, as the ICRC, our mandate, our commitment is to all populations and militaries affected and involved in armed conflict around the globe. So in that sense, one of the challenges that we see, or one of the key issues that we see is connected to the higher number of non-international um, um, uh, non armed conflicts that we see in the world today, the proliferation of non-state armed groups and their roles uh, in these non-international uh, uh, non armed conflicts and um, our ability to work with these actors to apply international humanitarian law faithfully. So I think 
And to that, I would also add the role of private military uh, security companies who also play an, you know, um, very significant role in, in these type of armed conflicts. So just to also put that in perspective and to say the ICRC doesn't take its eyes off the ball from a global perspective and therefore the, the proliferation of non-state armed groups and the higher number of non non-international armed conflicts in the world is, is also one important issue that the ICRC pays attention to. But and maybe also bringing it down to uh, the Ukraine context, I think the Ukraine context has highlighted an issue which actually Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer also referred to in an earlier NSL podcast, um, which is the, the fact that civilians are increasingly becoming active contributors to and participants to hostilities. And we as the ICRC, our attention here is uh, precisely to the issue whether does this now cross the threshold of DPHing? You know, are they now DPHing, uh, directly participating in hostilities? I'm sorry. Um, and as a consequence, are they now losing their protection as uh, protected entities in times of armed conflict? What kind of obligations do they come under? Um, and if states are providing uh, certain tools for them to offer these kind of, uh, to be part of the hostilities by using certain applications through their cell phones and so on and so forth, what kind of obligation does that then bring to the state? What kind of duty of care does the state have to bear to inform the citizens about the role they play? So in the ICRC, we call this civilianization of armed conflict. And some of my colleagues have also written on this in different blog posts. It's an important one that we think the Ukraine context has really brought to the surface. Another one, I would say, um, yes, and another important one I think the ICRC is paying attention to is new technologies in warfare, Emily. And, and that's, I would say, new and emerging technologies, because some of these things are not necessarily new. And we all know how artificial intelligence is playing a role in, in our lives. Uh, you know, armed conflict and means and methods of warfare are not spared by the advent of these new technologies. So the use of autonomous weapon systems and so on, and how that needs to be regulated by uh, the rules of war is something the ICRC's um, legal advisors are particularly paying attention to. And here, it's not just how the law should regulate, but also sometimes the law should prohibit some of these means and methods. And the ICRC pays very close attention to this, given our experience of 160 years of humanitarian action around the world, you know, how ethical is it for us to just hand over the decision to pull the trigger on, on a human being to a machine? So is this even a legal question? Is it not, uh, to begin with, is it not an ethical question also? These are some of the questions that the ICRC, uh, in the ICRC as legal advisors, we are paying attention to. So I would say those are a few things that, you know, among many others that, that has caught our attention lately. A few, but extremely complicated, I'm sure. Absolutely. Because, I mean, AI, it's happening so quickly. When you layer the complexity of civilian participation in hostilities, and then you can layer the cyber domain and hacktivism, very complex legal questions. And Emily, you actually brought my attention to one other thing I wanted to mention. So the cyber domain and outer space domains are two relatively new domains into which states are getting, you know, military action is definitely seeping into these domains, if not already there and taking place. So this is another area where the ICS is paying close attention to and working with states to encourage states to first accept that as long as military 
operations take place in, in cyberspace or outer space, IHR still regulates mm-hmm. the, that conduct. So that's an important uh, discussion into which the ICRC's legal advisors are paying attention to. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention another very important question that we are heavily involved in, which is the preservation of humanitarian space in times of armed conflict. So the whole question of restrictive measures, sanctions that states impose on other actors, be they states or non-state actors, and as a consequence of, and counterterrorism legislation, as a consequence of which humanitarians, it becomes difficult and sometimes impossible for humanitarians to do their job, to be impartial and independent and neutral in, in these uh, contexts. So that's a very important question to which we are trying to work at the multilateral level and at bilateral uh, state level to ensure that that space is preserved uh, even in times of armed conflict. Lakmini, so not all, but many of our listeners are like me in the sense that they are uniformed attorneys. And we serve primarily as advisors to commanders who ultimately make decisions on the battlefield. But many of us haven't had the opportunity to work with the ICRC, or if we have maybe in very limited context. So would you mind please explaining how the ICRC works, how it interfaces with the Department of Defense? And if you could touch on that role of confidentiality and then that important role the ICRC has to maintain neutrality during these interactions. Sure. That's a very important question, Emily. And I'll I'll start with the first part of your question, which is what what is our relationship and uh, the nature of our dialogue with the Department of Defense? It's a long-standing one and one that we appreciate and have mutual respect for, I would say. And our dialogue extends to both policy and operational level. So with the OSD policy, the Department of Defense's policy shop, we have we have had a number of engagements over time where we have tried to influence U.S. policies, doctrines, and strategies to inform them with the experience that we gain from the field. And not just as theorists or interpreters of IHL sitting in, in, in a corner of, of a head court in, 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 a, in, a, in an office, but informed by our operational experience, we try to bring that information to um, the policymakers at the Department of Defense. And most recently, I think I can give the example of the Civilian Harm Mitigation and Response Action Plans, the CHIMRAP, as the acronym goes. Over time, we've contributed to many efforts in the Department of Defense in this on, on this t- uh, topic, but particularly on this one, we have made confidential submissions to hopefully influence the documents that are being formulated within the department. And that brings in both our operational experience and our IHL expertise to come to bear on on the sort of the supportive role that we'd like to play with the Department of Defense's policy initiatives. And it also extends to detention issues, be it detention at uh, Guantanamo Bay or detention operations that are run extraterritorially where the U.S. military either directly carries them out or partners with another actor We have tried to work with the Department of Defense's policy shop to bring our observations and recommendations to inform such initiatives. So that's the policy angle. And then from an operational perspective, we have had a very robust engagement with uh, a number of combatant commands, notably CENTCOM, for I think obvious reasons, that has been the center of attention in in the world for a number of armed conflicts to which the the United States has been party to. So we have been beat from Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria, Yemen, and so on and so forth. 
our delegations in the field through our office in Washington channel confidential information, incidents that we have observed, allegations of things that may have gone wrong that needs further looking into, or problems that persist in the way certain battles have been conducted or the way the the U.S.'s partners have behaved in times of armed conflict with a view to influencing the support relationship that the United States has with a partner. So we have have brought our observations and recommendations through confidential written reports and confidential verbal exchanges to the attention of the authorities. And this extends to AFRICOM. Of course, we share our observations on uh, Gitmo with regard to Southcom. Our colleagues in Asia have a, uh, together with the Washington office, has a very, is building a relationship with Indopaycom and so on and so forth. So many of the combatant commands of the United States military, I would say, do not think the ICRC is a stranger because we have been making the overtures to uh, engage in an operational dialogue. And that brings me to the point you asked about confidentiality. So confidentiality is the cornerstone of the ICRC's modus operandi, Emily. And that's part of our uniqueness because what we observe and what we want to bring to to the dialogue, the bilateral dialogue with the state or a non-state actor or a multilateral forum is very often than not informed by firsthand knowledge. So we document cases, we talk to people affected by armed conflict, we visit places of detention, we see people in uh, displacement camps. And that information that we are privy to is shared confidentially with the actor that we think is responsible. And it's an allegation, it's not a judgment. We bring an allegation saying, according to the document uh, information that we have documented, your troops, this particular individual or this particular group or this particular unit has done X, Y, and Z things. We think these have, and this is what we documented as the consequences, and here's what we think you should do about it. So it's a bilateral confidential conversation where we hope to build trust with the actors we talk to, be they states or non-state armed groups, through which we hope to persuade them and encourage them to comply with the law as opposed to naming and shaming, which I don't, I'm not saying that is a wrong way to do it. Advocacy and, you know, um, making public reports about misconduct is another way of uh, ensuring accountability and compliance with the law. It's complementary to the way the ICRC does business, does its business. But the confidential bilateral engagement is important to us. One, because it builds trust, and we hope that encourages parties to comply with the law because we are not publicizing what we have found as misconduct. And B, it's also important for us because it gives us access to people who are otherwise not accessible to anybody else. That's the key to access. And perhaps more importantly, it provides security to ICRC staff because we go to places that are pretty dangerous. We don't use weapons. We don't have security guards. So we operate on the basis of confidentiality and trust. So if our confidentiality is not respected by those to whom we talk, that is not necessarily a problem for them. It's also a problem for us because it loses, it causes the loss of our credibility and even can be a threat to our security. And that's why we want to be neutral and not be seen as 
dependent on a particular organization or be servient to a particular organization because that confidentiality and trust allows us to be neutral and impartial in the way we work. All of that is so clear and I think so important for NSL practitioners to understand. And just the way that you explained it, it makes absolute sense. In terms of your ability to gain credibility with all parties to the conflict in order to accomplish your very important mission, which really nobody else can do. I mean, the ICRC is just so unique in that way. And so thank you for explaining that because I think it's very important for all of us to hear. Is there anything else you would recommend that we haven't talked about yet that uh, NSL practitioners could, could do, get smart on or prepare for in order to make interactions with the ICRC the most successful and develop that really critical working relationship during times of armed conflict? So, Emily, I think that that's a mutually beneficial relationship because to begin with, both parties work with the same body of law. You know, we are all trying to apply, uh, you know, faithfully apply international humanitarian law. So I think just as much as you speak from the perspective of NSL practitioners, I think it's also beneficial for the ICRC. We see it as a beneficial relationship to engage with you one of the best ways to do that is to get to know each other better. And I think these kind of podcasts, our engagement with the with the JAG school, our engagement with the Department of Defense, these are ways in which we try to familiarize NSL practitioners about the work of the ICRC and how we are different to NGOs, how we are not the United Nations, how we are not the national societies of uh, of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement. Oh, by the way, today is the 8th of May, which is the, the Red Cross and Red Crescent uh, Day. So it's a, you know, it's oh an important gosh. day for the Red Cross. Yeah. <laughs> so being familiar with the ICRC's role is one way to sort of demystify the ICRC, I would say, and to, and to know that, okay, we are not the ones going around, um, you know, uh, uh, collecting information and not necessarily doing anything meaningful about it. So that's one thing I think we should uh, pay attention to. The other thing I think is to know that when you are deployed in the field, we are also connected to the combatant command that you have ultimate authority to, so that even your bosses, as it were, have um, a dialogue with us. So to re- I assume with my experience in, in the field where I have interacted with JAGs in the field, I feel that that's an important reassurance to say, look, we also speak to CENTCOM, you know, your boss is going to receive the exact same report that I'm giving you. So you're, you know, you're not, you know, I'm not putting you on the spot to do something about this report. So I think it, being able to trust the way the ICRC works is an important one for us to be able to have a frank exchange and not just, you know, pay superficial courtesy to that relationship. And maybe another concrete step, Emily, we often we randomly do this, but I think we can definitely systematically do this. When you are being deployed to a particular theater, to to a certain assignment, let us know in the Washington office, because we can connect you to our officers in the field. We can can kind of do a pre-deployment briefing for you to let you know what are some of the humanitarian issues we're watching in that context. Who are the ICRC contact points that you can connect with when you're there? Here are the contact numbers and emails and so on. So I that is a sort of a, we can be a bridge. The Washington office can be a bridge for you to continue that engagement when you're deployed in the field. So I hope those are um, useful insights. Immensely useful. Thank you so much. At the end of the day, it's relationships is, is really the common thread. Absolutely. 
anything you're doing, any job you're in, relationships are the are going to be the common denominator. And so strengthening that, not just familiarity with ICRC, and but building on that relationship that sounds like we've already started. So I, I really appreciate that insight, Lakmini. Thank you. For my final formal question, I, I sort of want to look ahead and ask what challenges you foresee from an ICRC perspective in a near peer large-scale combat operations, what are the biggest challenges you've seen? Some of them we may have already touched on, but anything else you'd like to add? Yes, I think it's a very timely question, Emily. Um, Of course, as the ICRC, we understand that states want to give strategic direction to ensure preparedness for whatever eventualities that, that may come. But at the same time, I think uh, for us as the ICRC, it's also important to emphasize that large-scale combat operations are not inevitable. And it's an, it, the imperative should be to avoid it, given the humanitarian consequences that uh, um, these armed conflicts have resulted in and that we have unfortunately been witness to or, or have been all too familiar with in the past. And another thing that comes into my mind before we talk about the challenges is to say, so LSCO or large-scale combat operations is, is, not, a, is not an IHL term. It's, it's um, defined clearly in US doctrine, the field manual 3.3-0 to be precise. However, even though it's not an IHL term, it's important to notice that large-scale combat operations, to the extent that they can be categorized into an IAC or a NIAC should be compl- uh, uh, should be um, regulated by international humanitarian law or, or the law of armed conflict as you uh, um, as you call it in the military. So there's no reason why it should large scale combat operation should be an exemption to that. You know the law is very clear. As long as it's an IAC or a NIAC, international humanitarian law applies. So I think those are two important things for um, to set at the outset, because it's also a commitment that states made under the Geneva Conventions nearly 75 years ago. It's something that we should remain faithful to, especially in, in, in uh, anticipating large-scale combat operations. Now, to answer your question more concretely, Emily, so one challenge that we as humanitarians, we as the ICRC, is, is primarily paying focus, uh, attention to, is the scale of the humanitarian needs that will result in a large-scale combat operation as defined in US, you know, uh, uh, going by the uh, definition of um, uh, the US doctrine in place. And it, you know, nobody's, nobody will be surprised to say it, the scale and magnitude of the humanitarian consequence will, consequences will be immense. Um, you know, be they in terms of the number of detainees that will be taken, uh, you know, people who will be arrested, who will be detained, the, the way the trances would take place, the movement of people across borders, unfortunately, the deaths that would result in the battlefield, be they militaries or civilians, um, the scale of displacement, uh, uh, and, and, you know, injuries, and so on and so forth. So I, this, this, this cannot be underestimated. And we as the ICRC, what we are faced with, and we have stress tested the, the ICRC's capacity through tabletop exercises as well, or we are in the process of doing that. And we are confronted with the reality that we will not be spared by any of the challenges uh, that would result in, an, in, in, in a large scale combat operation. And I'm talking about 
um, essentially uh, the, the, the digital and physical threats that we have faced, the, we will face, sorry, we will face the disruptions to our uh, supply chains, um, the, uh, the, the, and our ability to, per which would adversely affect our ability to purchase and uh, move goods um, around to provide them on time to affected populations, restrictive measures or sanctions that would affect the delivery of our services, and perhaps at the core of it, our ability to stay neutral in the face of a near-peer conflict. You know, all these challenges would test the ICRC's ability to provide humanitarian services the way we have done in the last 160 years. I know we have set a, a very high standard, a very credible, as a very credible humanitarian actor providing meaningful services over 160 years of in the history and in the current and in current realities as well. But this type of conflict will test the ICRC's ability to deliver. So our message to states that are uh, conversing with us on this issue is, is twofold. One, to remind that the primary obligation to provide for the basic needs of people in their uh, control, in their hands, lies with states. The primary responsibility to provide basic needs and to comply with broad IHL obligations. That's, pri that's primarily the responsibility of states. The humanitarians come next to support that role. So, and the second, the twofold bit, the second part is that ICRC will probably not be able to deliver the way we have in the past, which means. The preparedness that states are uh, investing in, in terms of being able to fight the war properly while complying with the law, should also include preparedness to address some of the humanitarian needs that the ICRC has customarily addressed in the past, simply because we will not, we will not have the capacity to do so. So I think that is the core message or the key message that we have been trying to communicate on this particular issue, which I think is worth mentioning here as well. And with that, Lakmini, I think it's about time to wrap up. Do you have any final thoughts before we end today? So I, I've been very strongly struck by a speech that our president made, um, Mirjana Spoliaric made uh, late last year, Emily. And some of the, the key messages that she, she delivered has been repeated in some of her speeches afterwards. So this was particularly in, in the context of a speech that she made at the Geneva Academy in, in, uh, in November last year. So... And the core of her message, she made very good, you know, a very, she made a very convincing and, and very important uh, speech. And one message in particular resonates with, I think, a lot of us, and I'm, I'm sure you too, is about the importance of preserving our hard-won gains or consensus. And that is the Geneva Conventions. And, you know, there's universal ratification of the Geneva Convention. So it's, a, it's consensus. And, and the importance of reaffirming the universality and relevance of IHL. So I think that's a very powerful message. Um, and, and in other words, what she's saying is IHL is fit for purpose. And what is important is that states and non-state actors recognize uh, the obligations and implement those obligations faithfully. If you apply that to this particular conversation and our ro respective roles as operational legal advisors, in, in, in as a practitioners and operational legal advisors, um, I think play the, a very similar role. I think 
it's a unique role that you play when you accompany your commanders in the field to ensure that that you remain faithful to the commitment to faithfully apply IHL, even in the most trying times. And I want to assure you as the ICRC, I think that's the message I'd like to leave you with as the guardian of IHL, as we are commonly called, we remain committed to working with you and to support your efforts to use the preventive power of IHL, as our president called it, to preserve humanity in war. So I think we can work together on, we can continue to work together on that. Thank you so much, Lakmini. It's a really powerful parting thought or thoughts as we finish today's session. I want to thank you once again for your time and expertise, but that is unfortunately all the time we have today. So thank you again. And for those who are listening, please stay tuned for more episodes of NSL Unscripted and from the National Security Law Department at T. Jagslis, out. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.